Maybe you grew up with the hymn, Count Your Blessings. Count them one by one. Count your blessings and see what God hath done. If you were to do that, what would be on your list of blessings? I mean, normally we think blessing, we think the good stuff, right? You know, the things that make us smile, the things that uh, bring a little light to our day, the kind of things that expand our life and broaden our horizons or even secure our future. You see, we build a theology based on what we expect God to do and what God should look like and how he should act. And interestingly enough, that theology looks a lot like our hopes and dreams. Rarely do we think uh, when we look at things that come upon us, things like, you know, things that like rob us of sleep or interrupt our routine with difficulty or increase our stress or hurt our hearts or maybe spoil our reputations or break us down mentally or physically. Rarely do those things come and we think, Oh, the blessings of God. But what if? I mean, what if God's blessings sometimes took our hopes and our dreams and marched them up a hill and nailed them to a cross? I mean, what if? Uh, a couple of weeks ago, you'll remember Christian preached a wonderful sermon on the fact that strengths are weaknesses. And last week, we discussed that Christians grow in reverse. Well, in light of these two realities, that sometimes our strengths are our weaknesses and that we grow backwards, we want to see this week how it is that weakness really is our strength and how that even feeds into the idea of our Christian growth and sanctification. We want to begin with these cross-like credentials that we see in 2 Corinthians. We again enter upon a text into the middle of a situation in the Corinthian church that has been uh, attracted to what Paul calls super apostles. So, you know, there's the apostles, they're fine. But then there's these new super apostles that are getting a lot of attention from the members of the church. And these super apostles often boast of their credentials. They speak well as trained rhetoricians. They have very clear success by how many followers they've garnered and how much patronage they receive, how much money they earn from these followers. They boast of their successes and they ascertain, uh, uh, and ascertain, and they, they ascertain a certain place in the eyes of the Corinthian church. And in so doing, again, the Corinthians are really attracted to these guys because, again, they appear successful. They seem to have a lot of confidence, and they're still, you know, talking about Jesus, but a Jesus who clearly wants us to be bigger, stronger, wealthier, and more, uh, if you will, glamorous in the eyes of the watching world. And because of this, they begin to call into question Paul's ministry, mainly because of what it looks like on the outside. It doesn't have the sort of signs of success that these other men are presenting. And so Paul's getting a little bit of flack and a little bit of loss of traction with the Corinthian believers. And so he comes to the church to plead with them. And he's pleading with them mainly because he's saying to follow these super apostles is to follow a false form of Christianity, even if what they're saying mimics some of what Paul is saying. He's saying that this sort of idea that you can tell God's blessings 
and God's favor by followers and results. Paul says we need to unpack that a little bit. And so he comes in this text and he says, I'm going to do what they do. And I'm going to speak to you like a fool. And so he puts on this costume, if you will, of the fool, and he presents his credentials. So he says, these guys come and they come, you know, touting their success and letting you know their education and speaking with all these flowery words. So I'm going to put my credentials before you as well. And it starts off, you know, like you would think. He says, I'm going to brag about my accomplishes, my accomplishments. I hate to do it, but you forced my hand. Uh, and he doesn't give what we would think in our day, like the super apostles would give. They had a form of doing this. They would say, well, let me speak as a fool. And then they would sort of humble brag about, you know, what was me? I, you know, I went here and only 3000 people followed me that day. You know, the sort of humble bragging that goes on online, you know, Oh boy, gained another two pounds while in the south of France because all we do all day is sit around on the beach tanning and gorging ourselves on French food and wines at night. You know, hashtag pray for me, hashtag gonna be a fatty, hashtag probably have skin cancer. And the weaknesses he lists are not your top, typ uh, typical job interview weaknesses, you know, where they ask you, what are your weaknesses? And they say, well, you know, I've been told that sometimes I work a little too hard. Uh, and one thing I do, one of my other weaknesses is I don't like to take days off, you know. Uh, so you probably, you know, everyone's got weaknesses and these happen to be mine. He's about to place himself up against their credentials of these supers. And it doesn't sound super when he does it. Like it doesn't sound like the sort of things we would normally present. You know, someone would say, what's your superpower? Paul pretty much says like, well, bad luck. That's, you know, that's my superpower. Notice his credentials. It begins like we would think, you know, you're a Hebrew, me too. Uh, Abraham's children, me as well. Servant of Christ, I'm way better. Now, that's normally how bragging starts. And we think this is off to a good start. Paul's about to pull out all his stops, kind of what we've seen him do elsewhere, right? Pharisee of the Pharisees. According to the Torah, I was blameless. But he doesn't do that. He immediately takes this weird left turn. And, you know, instead of uh, what we would expect, like, well, you know, here's the number of churches I've planted. Here's the amount of converts that have come under my ministry. Here's the amount of men I've discipled into the ministry. You know, here's my baptisms. Here's my building campaign. Paul says, here's my credentials. I go to jail like all the time. I get beaten so often that I've lost count. Might be the head trauma. You know, my own people have beaten me in the severest form that they are allowed no less than five times. Three times they took bats to me. Once they stoned me. I've been in three shipwrecks. I'm constantly in danger by robbers and by natures, by my own people and by my enemies. There's danger in town. There's danger out in the woods. Even the sea doesn't like me. I stay up all night. I don't always get to eat or drink. I can barely stay warm. And on top of all of that, I'm constantly stressed out about all of the churches. He says, you think you're weak? Top that. That's how he ends his first argument. He says, you think I'm lying? I swear by God himself as my witness, it really is this bad, if not worse. I mean, I just had to be snuck out of the back door in Damascus. That's how shameful and weak my life is. And that's a real jab at these super apostles who are greeted often at the town gate 
by whatever sort of nobility lived in the city. They would welcome them in. And he goes, I didn't get welcomed into Damascus. I got snuck out the back because they wanted my head. And Paul's just getting started. He says, look, you guys want the flashy stuff, right? Visions and revelations. Well, I know a guy. 14 years ago, he went up into the highest heaven. He heard things which can't even be talked about. But I don't want to talk about him or that. In fact, I'm not able to. So I'm going to get back to my weaknesses. I mean, you would think that he would spend some more time there because that sounds pretty good. He went up into the highest heaven, into the very throne room of God. And he's like, that adds nothing to my credentials. And so I'm not going to spend any time talking about things that don't add to what I'm listing for you here. He only brings it up, in fact, to inform us about his greatest weakness. It's like, yeah, I went into the third heaven, but that's not what I want to talk about. What I talk about, notice, even when he says it, he doesn't say that it was him. Just some guy I know 14 years ago went up there. He says, but in order to keep me from getting conceited about what I saw, God gave me a thorn in the flesh. He says, unless my pride would rise up in me, God allowed Satan to work continually to poke me lest I get inflated. And three times Paul begged God, take it away. It's too painful, too hard. And God said, no, keep it. And so Paul says, take that. That's what I have. That's my superpower, weakness. Okay, so why? Notice Paul moves from this description of his weakness to this reality of a cross-born life. A cross-born life. I mean, we know this is counterintuitive. In fact, it sounds crazy. But why does Paul plant his flag here in 2 Corinthians and say, weakness is where it's at? Why does he want us, with the believers in Corinth, to not only see it, but to believe it and actually desire to join in with him? In weakness. I mean, if you look real carefully at the language of Paul, it's real hard to miss that it's reflective of the very language concerning Jesus' own life and suffering. 40 lashes minus one. I'm hated by my own and the Gentiles. Three times I prayed, Lord, let this cup pass from me. And three times I heard from the Father, no. You see, the cross isn't something to consider for our spiritual life in the sense of what happened 2,000 years ago objectively is both wonderful and good for me in that it forgives my sins, because it does. But Paul wants us to realize that that cross is not only uh, something that's good for our, our, our spiritual well-being, but it's actually the very shape of our life here on earth. If anyone is to come after me, right, let him take up his cross and follow me. The shape of your experience will be a cross. That's not something that, that Jesus did and that we're not connected to. Our life is connected to the very form of Jesus' life, which is a crucified life in this world. I mean, this non-success story that Paul regurgitates here, is not original with him. We've seen it before with the very Son of God. 
Paul's life has been so joined to Christ's life that he's willing to brag on his weaknesses. You'll notice if our life is shaped by the cross, as one author says, here's the best man God ever made. No, interesting way of phrasing it, but he's done nothing but write all his life. And what is his reward? Not ripe old age with grandchildren hanging on his sleeve, but an early violent death on a cross. And this death ruins all our efforts to turn the Bible into a manual for the good life. The good news of Christ is heard loudest and best by those who stand on the far side of their own fresh graves. You see, through the sacrificial weakness of Jesus, when we look at that cross and we see that sacrifice, we also behold God's greatest power ever known for humanity. I mean, don't we behold the very saving power and the wisdom of God on the cross and then We want to move from there and say, okay, that's fine. Weakness is the power of God there, but we want power to be the power of God here. And Paul says, you can't make that move. If that's where God displays his power to save, it is also where he's going to display his power to sanctify. Christ is crucified in weakness, Paul will go on to say in chapter 13, but lives in the power of God. Notice Jesus won by losing, and he conquered all by being conquered, right? Death, hell, uh, and the devil himself and sin were all defeated in the defeat of Christ. Christ's power was hiding, if you will, in the weakness of the cross. And you'll see in your own life then that our weakness is hiding the same power of God as it operates there. See, it's not that Paul is saying we are weak and then we'll become strong, right? We're weak for a second, but that weakness trains us to become very, very strong, kind of like, you know, weightlifting or something, uh, as we'll see more of in a second. But rather, Paul is saying God kept him weak And that God's strength dwelled in him all the more because that weakness remained in him. Notice, my grace is sufficient. My grace will suffice for you because, and listen, our translation, I think, doesn't do it justice, because in weakness, power comes to an end. The word that your your translation translates perfect there, it's not translated perfect anywhere else in the New Testament. It's always an end of something. Notice, his grace is sufficient Why? Because in weakness, your power comes to an end. When God devastates you and there's no way out, you know, those times in your life where there's no more control, there's nothing to be done. There's just something to be lived with. Those times that we hate, right? Where all you can do is accept what has come from the hand of God and you don't know the way out. He says, as soon as you've reached that point where everything in your strength has ended, he says, that's good news. Why? Because that's when Christ's power tabernacles with you. He says that in the very next verse, right? So the power of Christ may dwell in you. The same word used over and over in the Old Testament when God's presence comes to dwell in the temple and tabernacle. He says, when if you will, if, if you get cleared out of the way through weakness, Christ's presence dwells all the more clearly and firmly in your life because you're not depending on you anymore. Your dependence is wholly 
on him. I mean, we like power, but we want our power to look like power. But God's love toward us is often hidden in our suffering where we become less so that he can become more for us. Which is why God needs your weakness a whole lot more than he needs your strength. There's, I mean, how powerful is God? And then how powerful are you? Do you think he needs like to add your, your battery life to what he's doing to, you know, get things done? You can't make God stronger. The best thing you can do is get out of the way which is what weakness does for us, right? It's what suffering does for us. It's when God brings us to an end of ourselves. We say, well, I guess now I need you <laughs> to both act and to live through me. And our problem, of course, is that we never want to give up on our own power. Not that much. I mean, we might give up a little. We love it, man. We need it. We want to have a little bit of control. So God, because he's merciful, kills it. Which is why Paul can say here, God kept saying no. And I decided to delight in the fact that this was his will for me, this weakness. As one author writes, God is present and working in the world exactly in the place where a person is falling apart. Where they are discovering the limits of their power instead of discovering all of its possibilities. It also means that God is always involved with people in situations exactly as they currently are, instead of as they could be or might be or used to be, right? So a lot of times, even when we suffer, we think like, well, what is God teaching me through this? Which is the wrong question to ask. It's not that there's going to be some necessarily some big lesson that then you've learned from and now you're strong at the end. I mean, this might be the thing the very suffering itself, in order to keep you dependent on him. Paul doesn't want us to be naive. I mean, suffering is evil. And oftentimes, the evil one himself is the one involved in causing it. Paul's not saying this to say, like, isn't suffering awesome? We should all go get super excited about it. Or aren't trials amazing? Isn't it great that we've been diagnosed with this? Or isn't it wonderful that I've just lost my job and I don't know what's going to happen next? I mean, suffering is evil. But what it does is it exposes need and weakness and leaves room then for God's power to save. You meant it for evil, as Joseph said, but God meant it for good. You see, this life will always be formed by the cross that Christ has given to us. Which means, and this is not great news, but uh, it's true that tribulations aren't a disease that there's a cure for in this life. That not all problems are there to be fixed that sometimes they're a part of this life that's just to be withstood, not to be defeated. And this cross-shaped existence crucifies, thankfully, our deadly self-satisfaction, our pride, our wrongly placed confidence, our complacency that often comes, our, our, our deadly predilection to just kind of cruise and forget about God when things are wonderful. I mean, we would like to think we don't do that, but man, I think about myself a lot when everything's great. 
Weakness reminds us to run to where faith can hide. In Christ and his word of promise, when everything else is hopeless and dead. As Richard Hooker rightly stated, my eager protestations made in the glory of my ghastly strength, these I am ashamed of. But those crystal tears, wherewith my sin and weakness is bewailed, have procured my endless joy. My strength has been my ruin and my fall, my stay. So as we come to our final thing, our final point this morning, we want to see that this isn't just a cross-shaped reality, but it's a cross-powered life, that it really does have power for us, this weakness. Suffering may crucify us, and it does, and it will do it again and again, and little by little, there is less, at least, focus on self, Lord willing, and more focus on Jesus, and hopefully a lot more room for others. I mean, suffering has the wonderful power of making a new capacity for compassion and a willingness to move towards others who are suffering as opposed to away from them because they'll just interfere with your good time. It's interesting, isn't it, when you listen to these tragedies that take place, that oftentimes a parent who's maybe lost a child in a horrific accident or has suffered this sort of death, they go and they start some sort of thing, right, to help other parents who have experienced the exact same thing. Well, why is that? Because suffering oddly produces something in us that goes after other sufferers. And if weakness draws us both to God and to others, and if the law is fulfilled by loving God and loving your neighbor, isn't it strange that God uses this odd way to actually sanctify us, that in our weakness, we begin to be conformed to the very image of Christ, not through, if you will, putting on all of our strengths and going out and getting better, but by allowing God to do his work in us, that we might be expanded in our love and need for him and our compassion towards our fellow brothers and sisters and those in the world. Suffering does make us more, but not in the way that we think. It's not the kind of weakness, as we mentioned, that becomes strong. You know, that's how most, you know, exercise works, right? You fatigue your body, you bring it under weakness, you put yourself in a bad suffering situation, but you do it, why? Because you know the result's going to be strength at the end. And so again, it's weakness, but it's really being played for the goal of power. Well, that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying you'll become more, you'll just become more human, you'll become more compassionate, you'll become more aware, not only of your own weaknesses, but you'll become more aware of the need in the weaknesses of others and how much they too need compassion in this world. And while I've used this illustration before, it's worth repeating as we conclude. Uh, in a story called Sarah that was played on uh, the radio some years back, it tells uh, of the fall of a pretty prominent family in Virginia. She puts it this way, the first 12 years of my life, I lived in an upscale neighborhood in the suburbs of Virginia. My dad, he's a lawyer with his own practice. He's got a glittery bass fishing boat 
which may not mean anything to you at all, but down here, that's a big deal. And he's got a beautiful housewife and four perfect children. Most perfect right here. The picture becomes complete because my mom and my dad have their own Porsche. Uh, both have their own Porsche. My dad's a classic 911, but my mom's the sporty, fierce 928. And mom's license plate, of course, reads mom's 928. My mom was not the pack your lunch kind of mom. She was not the one to show up at your PTA meeting. No, she would wear expensive jewelry to the pool. That is how she was. But we are going to line up in our Laura Ashley dresses at the Junior Women's Cotillion Holly Ball and the Miller and Rhodes White Gloves in Party Manor at Etiquette School. Yes, yes, we are. And yes, we did. Now, that's what it looked like on the outside, she says. But on the inside, it was not an environment of excess, but an environment of constraint. Rules were very important. Etiquette, very important. My dad's insane temper could be set off by the slightest offense. And when I heard the Porsche rumble up in the driveway every day when he came home, I would run into my room and hide because maybe today would be the day that he found a candy wrapper in the sofa cushion and make my mom spake someone. But that whole life came to a screeching halt one night in 1990. I was 12 years old. She talks about how her father came home. They needed to have a family meeting. And she thought for sure her parents were getting a divorce because they'd never had a family meeting before. She said her dad came downstairs when they all were sitting there. He started crying. And she says he finally got the words out. He said, Daddy did something bad. I took money that wasn't mine. And tomorrow I'm going to turn myself in. And I don't know what's going to happen. And my brother was like, whoa, 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 back up. You mean, you mean you took money that wasn't yours? You mean like stealing? And my dad said, yes, what I did was like stealing. And so he tells the story about how as a lawyer, he did a case pro bono for a family whose child suffered a severe injury at a hospital that caused his mental retardation. And he won that case. And by winning that case, they won a huge family trust in which he was the trustee to distribute it in this child's lifetime. And as he goes on to tell the story, he said his dad, her dad decided after many years to write himself a check out of the trust fund. At first, it was just a little bit. He thought he would put it back. No one will ever know. But then a little bit became a lot and it got out of control. And so he tells us all this. And by the end, he's saying, yeah, we're going to start over. We're going to rebuild our lives. And as she tells the story, the idea of not only did he steal, but he stole from this family with this sort of child. She breaks down pretty hard. She says, the family didn't press charges, but my dad basically went from being a lawyer to being a paralegal. He was disbarred. It was terrible. My mom had to start doing odd jobs. She changed sheets at a nursing home, was the janitor at our Baptist church. It was a free-for-all at our house. Like what was once very controlled was now whatever. Do what you want, Sarah. Now listen here because this is the, the punchline. She said, but my dad was instantly better. He was a better person. He was happy. He chewed gum, which had never happened before. And my mom, her transformation was amazing. She basically just had this deep need in herself to recognize need and suffering in other people. One day she went downtown and packed some bag lunches and she'd never packed one for me and took them to some homeless people living under a bridge, which turned out, turned into this huge charity. She helped thousands of people who needed her help. 
I mean, she went to Rwanda, Rwanda during the genocide. She even let a homeless guy named Earl live with us once. He was a fugitive. We figured it out later. But hey, who are we to judge? I mean it. Who are we to judge, really? And so you see, again, the strange way that God works. When all was well, they were not well. And yet when the bottom fell out, notice she says, it instantly changed. They were better, better people. Again, not by putting on the uh, steps to better people, but by having their life devastated by their own sin and ruined by suffering that came again uh, through the will of God, even not, if not by his personal hand, which is why, again, the way that we look at our life needs to be changed. We need to filter the way that we even view the hardest things that we're going through. And maybe we'll be able to say this sort of blessing someday. May all your expectations be frustrated. May all your plans be thwarted. May all your desires be withering into nothingness that you may experience the powerlessness and poverty of a child and then sing and dance in the love of God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. Our glory is not in our strength, but in weakness. And we know that to be true because of what God has displayed in His Son, that at the very worst time and the very worst way, in utter weakness, He was given for us the most powerful thing that's ever happened to us and to all the world. So may we look at what we're going through through that same lens, for we are united to that same Savior. Let's pray.